Good morning, Sunny Ridge. It's so good to be with you here this uh, morning. If you have your Bibles with you, will you please open them up to 2 Kings, chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. That's 2 Kings, chapter 5, verses 1 to 14 is the uh, story that we are going to be reading this morning. 2 Kings, chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. If you're looking for Kings, it's in the Old Testament. It's after uh, Samuel's, First and Second Samuel, then First and Second Kings. You'll be able to find it there. But before we dive in, let's commit uh, this time to the Lord. Threat has been detected. Dear Lord, we are just so grateful that we are able to come together as your people um, and to be able to hear from you. So we just sung about your majesty. You are a, a great and awesome holy God, and yet we are nothing in comparison. So, Lord, as we come this morning, we don't come demanding, but we come with open hands, humbly just asking that, Lord, you graciously give us more of who you are. Lord, we desire more of Christ. Stir us up. Let us hunger for more of Jesus, for in Jesus there is life. Help us, Lord, please. We need more of you. Would you take my simple words this morning? Lord, I am weak. Would you fill me up with your strength? Let nothing that comes out of my mouth be my own. And if there are any, Lord, let it fall on deaf ears. But only the words of Christ, we pray. We want more of what Jesus has to say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. Here we go. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. So if it's a little different to yours, don't panic. I'm sure you'll be able to follow along. Naaman commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she had worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. Verse 6. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when the letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and says, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to him, sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elijah's house. And he, sorry, Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away. 
saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hands over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near to him and said, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So we have this character named Naaman. Naaman is a commander of the army of Syria. So let's just maybe step away from uh, the Bible here because it doesn't really describe it in much detail, but we get to use our imaginations just a little bit. And if we have to think of a commander of an army, especially those many thousands of years ago, we can kind of picture a man that was really rugged. He grew a proper beard, not like my beard. He grew like a proper manly beard. He, he was a man who probably had skin that had been scorched by the many hours and, and days and years that he had spent in the battlefield. His skin would probably be covered with loads of battle scars, something he, he would probably be proud of as he walked into a room to show, yes, I'm a man that has been successful. And we see that in Scripture. Scripture says he was a, a successful man. God used him to punish Israel. And so there's some sec- success behind the stuff that he has done. He, he's probably a man who is a man who is extremely intelligent, one that is decisive, gets to make decisions, makes the right plans. The, this is the challenge that is before us. This is how we're going to get around these challenges. He's probably a man that is highly respected and one who is also very, very um, confident in what he does, maybe even to a point of arrogance. And though Naaman has the favor of the king and, and his army as he's, a, as he's a person of valor, of courage, as he charges into the battle, align himself, not a coward, while he might have walked into a room and demanded respect, there was something that Naaman had that was a bit shameful, something that Naaman had that was not good and that he was a leper. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us how far along the line Naaman was with his leprosy. It doesn't say that he was far along, but we know that his life would have been hugely affected by it. And he would have been well aware, even if it was at the beginning stages of the things that was to come, leprosy was quite common in his time. And so, we, while I don't know what the Syrian people did when it came to leprosy, but what we see with the Jewish people, it was such a, a bad disease that was caught so easily that they would be cast out the city altogether. They would have to go and live outside the city, no longer being able to go to work, go, ho- go to home to your family, to worship in the temple, because by touch or by um, even just being in the vicinity, if the wind was blowing in the wrong direction, Leprosy could be caught. And so, while it doesn't say it here, we can, we can imagine that him being a leper, he probably couldn't touch his wife, give her a hug goodnight or a kiss hello. He couldn't, if he had children, play with them and, and hug them or be too close to them Threat because has been detected. they would catch leprosy. 
his life and his social life would have been so affected that when he walked into a room, he wouldn't be demanding respect anymore, but people would be stepping back. Maybe with a bit of pity in their eyes, but at the same time going, Naaman, don't come too close because I don't want to catch this. And we see that Naaman is extremely, extremely desperate. He has used up all his resources, all his options. And the reason why we can see that is because of the advice that he takes. Women in the time of Naaman had very little say in anything. Children had even less say in anything. Slaves had no say. And here we see a girl, child slave, who comes and gives advice. That he must travel to another country, and there he might find a prophet who might be able to cure him of his leprosy. We can see that there is, in Naaman, a desperate place. His back is up against the wall. He's tried it all, and he's willing to go and try this out now. And we can relate to Naaman to a certain degree, can't we? We in our lives, at some place, not necessarily with leprosy, but have found ourselves in situations where we are desperate, where our backs are up against the wall. Our lives seem to be falling apart. So we can, we can kind of see where Naaman is. We can have a heart for him to, to a degree because we have been there, if or not there, at this current moment. So what Naaman does is he heads off to his king and he tells the king and the king having favor with Naaman and just loving him says, man, I will write a letter. You go to the Israeli king and he sends him off. And so Naaman arrives at the king of Israel. He gets there with a letter and the king of Israel goes, man, is this man trying to start a war with me? How am I meant to heal him from leprosy? I can't do this. And Elisha hears of this and says, come, send him to me. I will show him that there's a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman arrives outside of um, Elisha's house with his chariots and his horses with the big brigade. And as he gets out, you can see him climbing off his chariots and outside of Elisha's house comes a messenger. Elisha doesn't even come out himself. And the messenger comes to Naaman and says to Naaman, go and dip yourself in the Jordan seven times and you'll be clean. And Naaman, hearing this, gets extremely angry. He gets cross. He, he rages. He, he's, his thinking is, well, surely he would first come out. This, this messenger wouldn't be sent out, but the prophet himself would come out. He would pray to his God, and he would wave his hands over the spots that need to be healed, and it will be healed. And, and dipping myself in the Jordan River? Man, this river is nothing. There are the greater waters in Damascus. Surely I could have just gone and washed myself there and be clean. And what Naaman does is he gets up and he goes away. He leaves. He heads back to Syria. He's going, I'm not doing this. This is ridiculous. And Naaman nearly misses out on what God wants to do in his life. Naaman nearly misses out on being cleaned as a leper. He nearly misses out all together. And this is an indictment on us, church. So often when our backs are up against the wall and things aren't going the way that we have planned, we leave. Because like Naaman, he, he had a preconceived idea of how things should work, right? When we go in a tough situation, our options are pretty much done. We think, well, if this could happen and maybe this could happen, Lord, and you pray about it and you tell the Lord how things should go. 
This is how, Lord, we will get out. If you could do this for me, my life would be better. And when God comes with a different option, we get cross. This isn't how it's meant to work out. Lord, this isn't how my life is meant to play out. And so we go out on our own, leaving behind the option that God had planned for us. This might even just be our normal day lives. Not even just a desperate situation. We can lay that aside for a second, but just the way we plan our life, isn't it? Man, regardless of what age we find ourselves in this room, we're thinking of the rest of our lives. How is this going to pan out? Man, this is how uh, my work should go. This is how my career should happen. This is how my kids will be. They're going to be sweet little angels. I'm going to have fantastic grandchildren. This is what they're going to do. Retirement is going to look like this. My wife and I, we're going to travel to this and that destination. This is what we're going to do. This is how my life is going to be. And when it doesn't pan out the way we want it, that God has a different plan for us, we get cross and angry instead of taking on what our God has given us, a plan that Ephesians 2 verse 10 says that he has planned before the foundations of the world that we might walk in them, a life for us to live. What we do is we get angry and we run away. And we miss out, church, so often on what God wants to do in our lives because we cannot let go of the plans that we have made. We cannot let go with what we think is right rather than what God has planned for our lives. Naaman is, is extremely lucky. He's fortunate. He's heading off to Syria and by the grace of God, Naaman has for him servants that love him. This is probably a credit to the way he treated them. We see their love for him in that they go, my father, they, they adore him. And as he's heading off, probably maybe half an hour, an hour later, on the way back to Syria, they have the boldness to speak up as he's cooled down. And as he's calmed down, they, they say to him, my father, did not he say something good? He, they kind of convince him and say, are we really going to not give this a go? Are we not going to give this a try? Are we not going to see whether or not this works? What do we have to lose? And Naaman doesn't say so, but he clearly agrees. And he heads off to the, the Jordan River and he, he dips, dips himself in the river seven times. And I can imagine with a bit of lack of conviction, a bit of, I don't think this is going to work, as he goes in for the first time, he comes out and goes, well, nothing's fallen off. Everything still seems the same. And he goes in and out, in and out, six, Threat has six been time detected. coming out and going, man, things still feel exactly the same as they were. And on the seventh time, Naaman walks in and he comes out and Naaman is restored. He's changed. His leprosy is gone. But I want to point out here the extent of how it was done. Let's look at verse 14. It says this, And so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. If you had to ask Naaman when he was heading off from Syria for the first time to Israel, what would he want? He would have said, I just want the leprosy to go. Man, if, if he could just wave his arms over and this leprosy disappear, I will be happy. But... After following what God had planned for his life, 
far different to what he had in store, what he had planned. After going through with what God had said he must do, what happens? He is restored, his leprosy is clean, but the extent of it is far greater than that of what he had ever expected. Naaman, whose skin would have been sunburnt and uh, uh, really scorched by the sun, battle scars all of, over him, now comes out with flesh like a child. Greater is the result of what God has in store for your and my life than what we have, church. What God wants to do in our life, the result of it is always better than what we had planned for ourselves. We can trust in our God because He has a plan for your life that is better than the plan that you have for your own. And I know this is difficult to let go of what we have planned for our lives at times. I know it's tough. It's, it's easy for us to look at this text and shake our head at Naaman. Oh man, Naaman, can't you see? If you just go and do this, man, you'll be restored and you'll be restored better. Why did you lack so much faith? But if we just had to put him, ourselves in his shoes for a second, we will realize we're a lot like him. We read this and we know Elisha's great miracles that he does. We know this is scripture and we, we can read the end and we can see the outcome. But this man doesn't look like he's, he's a God follower. We can see when he talks about the prophet, he says, and he would pray in his, the name of the Lord, his God, not my God. He, he talks, uh, he, he doesn't seem to follow God himself, in, at least not in this text. He's, he's someone who does not see the outcome of this. In our lives, with our own preconceived ideas of how things should go, we always know what the outcome's going to be, don't we? We think, well, this will happen, this will happen, and this will look, and that's great. But often what God calls us to, we do not see the next step. We see, well, we see the next step, but we don't see the step after that. We don't see the outcome. God doesn't tell us what the outcome of going down this road will be. And so what is required of us is a huge amount of faith. Because we can see our outcome, but we can't see God's. So how do we get to a point, as a church and as a people and as individuals, how do we get to a point where we are able to go, Lord, I see my plan. Man, it's great. I don't see the end of yours. Threat has been detected. But I'm going to follow you. Because what is needed is a radical obedience, isn't there? A radical obedience to be able to let go of what we hold dear, to be able to pursue what God wants, to trust in Him. And how do we get this radical obedience? Because if we're Christian, we want to be radical for Christ. That's really should. But it's tough at times, isn't it? And, and to be radical for Christ, having a radical obedience after God, requires a stern, secure, radical faith. It does. We need a faith. But a faith in what? Not faith, faith in what God sees the outcome in. Not a faith in the, the plan that he has. Not a faith in the ending. Not a faith that it will be better. But a faith in who is leading us. A faith that he is leading us and who he is. As Mark spoke about this morning, a faith, a pursuit of who Christ is, knowing more of him is what we need. And when we do that, when we have a better understanding of who this Jesus is, our oh man, our faith is solidified, made stronger, 
and we can have the obedience to be able to live out the life that he has planned for us. In whatever stage of life you find yourself in, the next step that you can take requires a faith in who Jesus is. And man, for us to do this best is to look at who Christ is, but even to do that well is to us to look on the cross, to see Jesus on the cross. When we see that, then we see characteristics of who he is that gives us the ability to be able to the faith to move forward. When we look at the cross, we, we see of an unconditional love, a God who loves us unconditionally. Man, that there was nothing that I have done or did do or will do that has earned this great sacrifice that he has given to me to save me. It's an unconditional love. If this God was so willing to send his only son, like we sang this morning, to come and die for me out of love, surely where he leads me next, I can trust him because he loves me. He's doing it out of unconditional love. When I, when I look at this cross and I, I see my Savior dying there, doing it because there's nothing that I have done to earn it, I see mercy and grace. That he's given me something that I do not deserve and not giving me what I deserve because Christ is receiving what I do, not deserve. I do deserve, the wrath of God. When I see this, I realize that my God is going to take me down a road full of mercy and grace. When I look at the cross, I see a God who is powerful because I see him defeat sin and defeat death and knowing that the road he leads me down, while there might be challenges, giants, mountains to climb, giants to defeat, he is greater than anything that he will take me down because he has defeated death. He has defeated sin. He is my all-powerful God. He is the Lion of Judah. And therefore, the next things that come my way, no matter how hard they might be down this road that he is leading me, I can trust him knowing that he is in control. That while I am weak, he is strong. Threat this has is been my detected. God. And when I, I look at the cross, I see a God who is faithful. A God who faithfully throughout generations and generations promised the sending of Jesus. And yet he fulfilled his promise in Christ. And he's faithful and just to forgive. And when I look and I see this faithful God, I know that the road he's leading me down, there's faith for God who will lead me down it. And he will never leave me. He's not going to drop me off halfway and say, okay, the rest is all by yourself. He's faithful. He's faithful. Church, we need to stir up in ourselves a hunger for more of who Jesus is. We need to, like that psalmist said, say, yes, Lord, my heart, it seeks you. It wants you. And we do this by spending time in the faith-arousing word of God. That as we read it, we see Christ, we see his faithfulness, we see his love. We see him there. And if we're not doing this, our faith will be weak. Our faith will be weak. Because it's in the word of Christ that our faith is stirred. It's in the word of Christ that we see Christ clearly. We know him. We're able to step out because we see the faithfulness of our God. In actual fact, when we look at the history of the coming of the Messiah, we look at Israel and their preconceived idea of what the uh, Messiah would be. We see that Israel thought that this coming Messiah would come and he would defeat them of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was oppressing the people of Israel. It was horrible. And they thought, man, this Messiah is going to ride in on a horse. 
and he's going to take them out and he's going to set us free from the bondage of Rome. He's going to liberate us. He's going to set us free. And then they will think, well, and then he's going to establish us as a world power. But they could not let go of their preconceived idea of who Christ is. They couldn't. So when the, the Messiah came in the form of Jesus, and when he arrived, and he did not go and take Rome out, when he preached love and forgiveness, when he came as a, the suffering servant, they missed him completely. They rejected him. And what happened is they missed out on the better outcome that God had planned. While they were looking for a Messiah that would set them free from the bondage of Rome, they missed out on the Messiah who came to set them from the bondage of sin. While they were looking for a Messiah that would set them up as the nation of Israel over all the world, they missed out on the Messiah who came to set them up as the sons and daughters of Christ. And there are those of us, even in this room this, this morning, who have a preconceived idea of how God should look. Man, my Savior should do this. This is how I should receive my salvation. And if we aren't able to let go and take on who Christ is, take on fully of what He has done, we're going to miss out on something so great. For it is only through the death of Jesus Christ that we are saved. No other way that you think may be better. But the outcome in this is far greater. And what is needed, says Scripture, to receive the salvation is faith. Faith alone in Christ. Threat that has we been detected. repent in Jesus. We repent of our sins. We believe in Jesus. And we will be saved. Isn't that amazing? And there's this option to take it now. To believe in Him and you'll be saved. And for those of you who do know Christ... Trust Him. Seek Him. Get to pursue Him. Because in the pursuit of Christ, there is life along the way. There's a fullness of life. There's a better outcome with God. God has planned for the remainder of your life. Far greater than what you have planned. Arouse up faith in your heart. Get to know this Jesus. Because He is far greater and his plans for you is far greater trust in him let us pray lord we are just so thankful for an amazing god like you a god who is faithful god who is powerful a god who is sovereign and lord we we want to admit and we want to ask for forgiveness that sometimes we hold too dearly to our preconceived ideas of how life should be lived to our own plans, to our, our own wants and desires. And I pray, Lord, that you would, you would just show us more of Christ, that you would give us the strength to be able to let go of what we hold dearly to, that we might be able to pursue Jesus wholeheartedly, stir up a faith in us, Lord, a faith that is based in who Jesus is, based in his character. Help us to be a people who are radically obedient to you, not because we are strong, but the one who we are obedient to is strong. To, to trust in you, not because our plans are best, but the one who, has, uh, who leads us, his plans are best. Help us to know more of Jesus. Help us, we pray. We ask this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.